Amen, amen. So good to be God's people together. I want to invite you to turn in a Bible to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Shouldn't be too hard to find. You could turn or swipe there. I want to also remind you that if you didn't get a communion pack, you can find one of those here. We'll be receiving communion at the end of this message. Mother's Day is a day that we want mothers, mentors, and mothering women to be seen. I mean, at the very least, to pause and say, hey, we see you. How many of you have been told, I see you? I see you. That's becoming more and more common these days, this phrase. I think about, I see you, like at the birthday party I was at earlier, when they served like a legit barbecue spread with spicy mac and cheese and like smoked salmon and pulled pork and some really righteous potato salad. I'm like, I see you. You didn't get the hot and readies for the kids party. You catered a barbecue food truck. Are you serious? I see you. Do You get what I'm saying? To see someone is to say, I see who you are, I see what you do, I see how you do it, I acknowledge it, I validate it, I recognize the goodness of what you are doing and who you are being. Mother's Day, at the very least, is about pausing and seeing mentors, mothers, and mentoring, mothering women. Have you felt seen by God? Not just seeing people on a horizontal level. I see you, barbecue person. I see you, teacher. I see you, mother. What does it look like to reverse that and to be seen by God? In some way, it's got to feel a little bit like being seen by others, right? When somebody says, I see you, it makes you feel known, loved, yes? Could you imagine that on a cosmic, divine scale to then be seen by God? What does that even look like? Could you imagine how that feels to be seen? If it feels good when someone says, I see you, I see the work you're doing. Could you imagine it coming from the God who sees And how might being seen in that way affect how you see the world around you? If I can be seen and validated and recognized and appreciated and beloved, I wonder if that person is seen by God also. Maybe I should treat that person accordingly. What if I saw my neighbor as one in whom the image of God resides? How could being seen by God transform you? And how could being seen by God transform the way you see the world? The story in Genesis 16 is a story about the God who sees. But who God sees is important. Because who God sees is a cast out foreign woman of low status and who's caused conflict in the blessed family of Genesis. It's a little story tucked within, crinkled and in a wedge of a big story, and that's Abraham's story. 
The thing I love about the Bible is they don't edit out a lot of the rough patches within the big stories. Sometimes we approach the Bible as a chronicle of heroes, and really it's a chronicle of imperfect people trying to see an unseen God. And what happens when he looks back? How does it make this foreign, low-status, cast-out woman feel? And how does it affect her view of the world around her? You with me in all this? The God who sees. Maybe, just maybe, he wants to see you this evening and this week. I want to read Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 to 16. It's toward the end of this encounter. After we read it, I'll back up and kind of give you some of the recap. But let's dive right in to Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord, which is a way of saying a messenger that speaks on behalf of God. Because in the ancient world, kings could send their messengers, their viceroys, and they carry the word and presence of the king. So the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, that's Abraham's wife, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Pause there. The name Ishmael means God heeds or God has heard. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. But she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Ishmael, the God who heeds. Hagar, the one who names God, the God who sees. I have seen the one who sees me. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Now I want to ask you this question. How many of you have seen this sign or needle point in your life or in your house? If you grew up in the South, show of hands, if you've been in a house that has this on a dish towel or the wall or a needle point like this, 
Glory, hallelujah. Bless this mess. That's what it says. Becky, have you needle-pointed this very thing? Becky? You have? Okay, she admits it. Bless this mess. What Genesis 16 is, is God's determination to bless a mess. The setting of Genesis 16 is a mess. And here's the deal. I need you to understand that in the midst of a mess, we find a God who finds us. We see a God who sees us. And we bless a God who blesses us right in the middle of a mess. Did you see that in what we just read? Let me tell you, it's even messier than you thought. In Genesis 16, the story actually begins back in Genesis 12. The big mess in the background of this story we're looking at this evening is that in Genesis 12, God called Abram to move. His name was Abram. He was doing his thing. God approaches him. God finds him and says, pack up and move to another place. Here's the thing you got to understand. Nobody moved in those days. You want to be buried where your daddy was buried and your grandfather was buried. You stayed put. That's just how it was. And all of a sudden, he hears this voice calling him to move. And in Genesis 12, Abram moves. He moved because this voice said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to have descendants too numerous to count. Did you hear something a moment ago that sounded like that? Anyway, he's told to move. He's told that he'll be a great nation. And so he gets his family together, his wife and help and servants and uncle and cousin and whoever else and his cattle and they go. They've been living in this place for 10 years. He's encountered God. But in 10 years, he's got new digs, but no kids. 10 years, still no child. Well, God said I'd have a child. Matter of fact, God said I'd have lots of children. Maybe he was the one that had already written that song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And he's sitting there going, I wrote this song and I still don't have many sons. What's the deal? It's been 10 years. They have new digs, but no kids. Was that really God speaking to me? Or did I just pack up and go somewhere for nothing? Did God really say and promise me that he has plans to prosper me and a nation? Because you got to understand, the biggest deal was not just that you were buried where your daddy was buried and your granddaddy was buried. It's that you had other kids to be buried next to you when they died. You want to carry on the family name. And here's this guy that's supposed to have a great nation, and he doesn't even have any kids. So he can't have any grandkids or great-grandkids, much less a nation. Did God forget what he said? Is God really good? Can he actually get this done? You see, human nature causes us to let our circumstances tell us what God is like. Circumstances tickle our ears and tap our shoulders and say, look around. 
God didn't promise this, right? No. No kids, no this, no that. I moved and I took this new opportunity and it's not what I hoped. Circumstances whisper into our ear and they try to tell us what God is like, which is why so much of discipleship and spirituality is anchoring yourself, grounding yourself in a firm sense of who God is so that when the mess happens around you, you can say, my circumstances look crazy, but God is my firm foundation. I may feel unloved by those around me in my circumstances, but I know that God is love. The longer I follow Jesus, there are fewer things I'm certain of. But the things I'm certain of, I am more and more deeply convinced. I'm convinced that God is love, that God is good, that God is near. I'm convinced that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I'm convinced that we are given the Holy Spirit to transform us and to compel us as the world gets transformed around us. I'm convinced that God is love, that God is good, and that God is near. And if you get that straight, whenever your circumstances, 10 years or 100, when they go messy, you can still be attentive to who God is. Human nature says, this is what God is like, look around. But the task for us Abraham, Abram, whatever his name was at that moment, is the same task before us. Can we hold on to who we know God to be and what he said he'll do, even if the evidence is trying to tell us he forgot you? When human nature whispers in our ear, And because waiting is hard. Waiting is hard, yes? This is a lot of times we try to take matters into our own hands, and this is exactly what Abram does. It's been 10 years. Did God forget? His wife, who's named Sarai at this time, she's going to be named Sarah. Abram is going to be Abraham, but not yet. Sarai comes to him and presents him an alternative. Let's take matters into our own hands, because having an heir is a big deal. And maybe, just maybe, Sarai and Abram are, ha- are having a conversation that says, just maybe this is God's plan after all. Who knows? What happens next, listen, is not a morality tale. It's a reality tale. I need you to understand this. A lot of times when we approach an ancient text that's written several millennia ago, we snoot our noses up and say, goodness, Abram and Sarai, how could you? That's unthinkable. You need to understand that the world in which we are engaging in is quite different from 2022 in modern America. Because having kids was such a big deal, And because for 10 years they've had this narrative of a promise that they would be a great nation and they're looking around and their circumstances says, it ain't happening yet. Abram did what many, many, many other men did in his day. He had three choices. If his wife couldn't conceive and have a child, he could divorce her because this is a patriarchal society. Men called the shots 
And if she wasn't or couldn't uphold her into the bargain, they would just send her away. That was option number one. Option number two, and we see this even with the great biblical heroes of the Old Testament, they could take a second wife. Maybe she could. It's not ideal, but it happened. It's not a morality tale. It's a reality tale. The third option, and this is the option that Abram and Sarah, Sarai take, and that is to get someone that is a handmaiden or concubine, so to speak. So he's still holding on to Sarai. He doesn't want to divorce her. And he's not going to elevate some other person to be a second wife. Sarai's idea and what Abraham concedes is, okay, bring me Hagar and let's see what happens. Well, Hagar becomes pregnant. And something happens in the space of this shared household where hurt feelings enter. And when hurt feelings happen, rifts occur. It's something about our faith in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who what? Trespassed against us, sinned against us. There's something about keeping short accounts with other people that clears our conscience and puts us on our knees to say, oh yeah, I blew it too, God. Would you forgive me? And oh, that reminds me, I guess I should forgive them too. God, if you can forgive me, maybe you can give me strength to forgive them. There's something about rifts that have a tendency to grow and grow and grow over time if they're not dealt with. Sarai and Hagar have a rift developing. Hagar dishes it. She doesn't just take it, she dishes it. It's a two-way street we see in Genesis 16. And so Sarai retaliates, and here's another thing. Our faith in places like Romans 12, Philippians 2, it's not only that you forgive people, you try to resolve things and bear with one another, and you try not to take revenge. Y'all know there's a difference in our interpersonal relationships between reacting and responding. Ouch. You're talking to a nice reactor right here. I'm a nuclear reactor, baby. Part of my formation is to learn to respond, not to mirror back the same kind of heat. So hurt feelings leads to a rift, and then harsh dealings, I'm sorry I couldn't resist, it rhymed, leads to conflict. And what we tell couples in our premarital prep is a conflict is anything that requires a resolution. Well, She goes to Abram to resolve it. And Abram says, do whatever you want. Well, what she wants to do is kick Hagar to the curb. And that's what she does. I wish I could tell you that she learned her lesson and that's the last time she'll do it. If you fast forward to Genesis 18, I believe it is. Genesis 18, Hagar gets kicked to the curb again. It's not 18. It's... Twenty-one. Hagar gets kicked to the curb a few times, but God intervenes a few times. Here's the thing I need you to understand before we go much further about messes. We all have them. We are all messes ourselves. We have them and we are them. But here's the invitation 
God seeks us, hears us, sees us, blesses us in spite of and in the midst of our messy situations. You have a couple who was struggling to wait. You had a couple that took matters into their own hands. You had a couple that mistreated someone of a lower status. You have a person of a low status who's a foreigner, who's dependent on them, who has been some kind of rift and cause of conflict. You have a mess from people who are messes. And when she gets kicked to the curb, you'll notice that she's there in the wilderness. And that's when our story picks up that we read. God finds her. In Genesis 16, we don't see Hagar crying out to the Lord, where are you? God goes and finds her. He seeks us. And then when he speaks and asks questions of her, she responds and God hears He sees her misery, and then he blesses her. And understand this, at that moment in the wilderness, she thought her life was over, literally and physically. She thought her life was over. The circumstance said, whoever this God that Abram and Sarai know wants nothing to do with you, yet this God seeks her, sees her, hears her, and then says, by the way, I'm going to bless you. He didn't ask where you, did you earn it? He says, where'd you come from? Well, from my mistress's house. Where are you going? Doesn't matter. I'm going to show you a new way forward. Do you notice when he says, where'd you come from? She answers. He also asks, where are you going? She doesn't answer because it doesn't matter. Because he's going to send her and bless her in a new trajectory. Her circumstances and her imagination could have never dreamed up on her own. He blesses her and says, you're going to have a good nation also. You're going to have descendants too numerous to count also. What I said to Abram, I'm saying to you. This servant, foreign, low class, low status Count out, cast off. He's going to give her the same blessing as the patriarch, Father Abraham, you could say is still good for Mother Sarah and Mother Hagar. Messes, 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 messes. It doesn't matter her answer, where are you going? Because he's going to send her on a new trajectory of blessing and belovedness. Also in premarital prep, we've done this recently with another couple. We have the family funnel. Do you like this illustration? It's imperfect, but I hope it illustrates this. You see this person at the bottom of the funnel. This person represents the point at which everything that came before has led to. So at the top of that funnel, I tried putting other people in there, and it just looked weird and creepy. So let's just imagine that at the open end, at the top of that funnel, is your great-grandparents and your grandparents and your parents and your family of origin, your friends, sisters, cousins, your life experience. Put it all in the funnel. You are the point to which this has led. And in so many ways, good, bad, and messy, they brought you and formed you or deformed you to this point. Yes? 
But do you agree that your past does not have to determine your future? This is how they did it. This is how they talked. This is the kind of house that I grew up in. This is how my friends related to me. What happens if you took that point, the moment you are standing right now, and you inverted the funnel? What if you decided to be a new trajectory and a new point, and you say, God, perhaps you're blessing me, and maybe it matters less where I've come from, although it matters. Maybe it matters less where I come from. Maybe it matters more where I'm going. So when we tell couples that are beginning this new journey of marriage, we said, your family of origin has shaped you. It's brought you for better or worse or messy. But it does not have to determine every step of your journey ahead. What happens, whether you're married or otherwise, if you say God has marked out a new course and trajectory of blessing? How will I speak to others? How will I relate to others of a different ethnic, racial, socioeconomic background than me? I don't care how they did it. How will I do it? How will I spend money? How will I give myself and my time and my talents and my money and my energy? How will I cultivate relationships with others? What's the temperature that I will set my house? And I'm not talking about at the thermostat. Will I cultivate a home of love and acceptance and hospitality and forgiveness? How will I communicate How will I tuck my kids in at night? How many more times do I have to tuck them in in the first place? So how will I be present to the person in front of me? My past and my family of origin may have brought me to this point. But when God sees you, when God enters into your mess, he says, would you follow me and let's carve a new path? Let's start a new trajectory. And you might be able to go with him. So here's an invitation. Because he's seeking you in the midst of your mess. He's blessing you, finding you, speaking to you. And you might be standing at the precipice of this new funnel, this new wake that you're going to send out into the future. If you wait until you're perfect, you'll never go. Well, if I had more money, I would, no, there's always going to be more money you're going to need. If you wait until you're perfect or the the 15 minutes more mature or the 15 years more spiritual version of you, you'll never go. So just go. Start walking. Because when you walk with God, you realize, oh, he's meeting me as a mess and in my mess. That's the raw material he can work with? Okay. I'm telling you, if you've been waiting for a sign, here's the sign. Quit waiting. Start walking. The danger point is that Abram and Sarah were waiting, and they kind of walked off the path. The beauty is that God still met them in that mess and said, "Uh, let's walk back over here. You were created in love. You're on this journey to return back to love. And the good news is between point A and point B, you have God who is love trying to course correct and 
shepherd you down a new trajectory. Because if God waited until we're perfect, he'd never have a family. If God waited on Abram to be perfect, you haven't read Genesis. But God doesn't wait. He just keeps walking. If God waited for Hagar to be higher class and not foreign and not this and not that and if she was this and if she... No, no, no. He doesn't wait. He seeks her. So if God waited until we're perfect, we never have a family. So just be loved where you are. In your mess, in your imperfection, be loved. And if you wait for your circumstances to get perfect, you'll miss the blessing that's right here within reach. So look. It's not lost on me that the first thing we should thank God for every day is, okay, I'm living, breathing, I'm here. You've brought me in safety to this new day. Some of us didn't know we would make it to this point this evening, but God has brought you. Start there. My world out there is a mess, but in this moment, in this space, I have something to say thank you for. God seeks her, blesses her in the midst of a messy situation. I love, love, love verse 13. This is why I'm doing this talk. I've been gripped by this all week. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Pause, quiz question. You already know the answer. Who's the first person in the Bible to name God? This low-class, low-status, slave, foreign girl. She names God. You are the God who sees me. She gives the special name to God. She's the first person to give a special name to God. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Scholars are still struggling to translate what she says. There's some version of, I've seen the one who lives. I've seen the one who sees. I've seen something beyond the veil. I've seen something that has seen me deeply beyond my status, my ethnicity. What name would you give to God this evening? Maybe you need to write that down or think about it. Maybe you give him a different one tomorrow, but what's the name you give him today? Could someone fill in the blank with their name? The one who, what? What's? Is love. Amen. The one who, what's today's name? The one who gives life. I'd say the one who heals. The one who is good. What name would you give God this evening? If you don't share it, would you write it? And at least share it with him. She blesses the one who blessed her. We always talk about God bless you. She blesses God. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual writers and priests, wrote this in his book, The Life of the Beloved. A blessing touches the original goodness of the other and calls forth his or her belovedness. When you say God bless you to someone this week, what you're saying is, I want to reach and see the original goodness of who you are 
and call forth God's life, love, light, and blessing and your belovedness into being. I'm naming it and I'm seeing it. I see you. I'll close with this story. Henry Nouwen, who wrote that quote, spent the last 10 years of his life as the priest pastor at a community called Daybreak in Toronto. He didn't mean to stay there. He was supposed to stay there for a week, and there was a circumstance that was difficult. Someone was injured. There was a conflict. I'm not making this up. There was a conflict between the person who was hurt and another family. Kind of a rift and conflict and harsh dealing situation. Henry Nouwen was so bad to the bone and full of the love of God that he was staying there for a week and he ministered to these people in the midst of a mess and they said, can you just stay here? And he's like, sure. And he spent the last decade of his life there before he died of a heart attack. But the community, Daybreak in Toronto, was a community, a group home of people who had mental and physical handicaps. So this guy who had taught at Harvard and taught at Yale, who had written a bunch of books and spoken at a lot of conferences, spent the last 10 years of his life amongst people who did not give two rips about his degrees or where he's taught. That's Jesus. That's a trajectory that Christian leaders should follow. If in the last 10 years of my life, I'm trying to still wear sort of cool shoes and be talking and be heard. Y'all say, come on, man. Do what Henry Nouwen did. Just go over there. Be quiet. Go love people over there. He's at daybreak, and he's leading a prayer service. And he's Catholic, so he's wearing these big flowy robes. And Janet, one of the handicapped women, comes up to him and says, Hey, would you bless me? And he goes, Yes, of course, Janet. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And she goes, No. And she stops him as he tries to move on to the prayer service. She goes, No. I want a real blessing. <laughs> and as a priest, he's like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of that's pretty good, right? He wasn't quite sure what he meant, but what he was aware of is, oh, she's, she's needing something more of me. He says, okay, I'll, I'll come back to you, you know, during this service. So he does this prayer service, and there's 30 people sitting in a circle on the ground, And he's doing his prayer time, and then toward the end of this service, he says, okay, Janet requested a blessing. So Janet, at this time, I would like to bless you in the presence of all of our community members. So Janet gets up, and, you know, he comes to his feet, and he's there standing in his robes, and he starts to lift his arms like in a blessing posture. And what she did next surprised him, shocked him. Janet comes right up to him and puts her arms into the folds of his long, flowing white robes and embraces him. And then Janet puts her head on his chest. Do you think that posture set the tone and changed the trajectory of whatever he thought he was about to do? There is something in that embrace that called forth her belovedness and brought out this blessing from Henry Nouwen to Janet. He said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house, 
And all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days. And that there is some sadness in your heart. But I want you to remember who you are. A very special person. Deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. All of this being said, as she has her arms enfolded in his robe and her head on his chest, she looked up, smiled, and she walked back to her seat. You know what happens next, don't you? Another woman raises her hand and says, I want one too. So then she comes and embraces him, and he blesses her. He calls forth her belovedness. And then another, and another, and another, and another, and another. And you wonder, okay, with this mental handicap and these physical limitations, what was the story written about Janet and the others who came? What was the the funnel that brought them to this moment? And what was... Henry Nowen, in the name of the Father, Mother, Jesus, invoking and asking and sending them into a new trajectory, even for just a moment, to know that they're deeply loved and beloved. Whatever happened in that room so touched one of the assistants, a 24-year-old guy who was probably just trying to earn some money and make a buck and sure, this will do. The 24-year-old assistant said, actually, I'd like one too. What about me? And so this 24-year-old young man comes and Henry Nowen places his arms on his shoulder and he says to this young man who was just there, you are God's beloved son. Your presence is a joy for all of us. When things are hard and life is burdensome, Always remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. He said his eyes filled with tears. He thanked the pastor who embraced him and he went on his way. How many of you right now need to be seen by the God who calls you beloved? You've been going about your week and you've forgotten who you are because you thought you were this job or this family member or this friend, but who you are at the base level is a beloved child who's seen by the God of the universe in the midst of and in spite of your mess. This is what seeing does. It calls us back to attention and awareness of our belovedness in the midst of whatever conflict you're walking into, whatever waiting you're in the midst of, whatever joy or struggle or mess Pay attention, be reminded that you are seen and beloved. And he's speaking blessing over you that just might change the trajectory of your next step. Would you sit sometime this week long enough to feel the gaze of God who calls you beloved? Would you spend another moment sitting and naming God, what's the special name you can give 
to him. How could the eyes of love and blessing reshape and recolor your vision as you go find Hagar's lost in the wilderness or Sarai's and Abram's stuck in the waiting. May you see others and be seen. Amen and amen. May our Lord reveal to us as a heavenly father and a mothering God Encourage us to share in the joy and work of cultivating healthy, peaceful communities that seek, see, and create space for the outcasts. May the Spirit of God open our hearts to reach out to our neighbors in charity and acceptance as we find each imperfect person beloved, called, and worthy of the blessing of God. May our mothering God beyond our understanding, yet from deep within our hearts, protect us in the tender yet powerful embrace of divine love, which nurtures us moment by moment and from age to age.